and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the Pack Heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. Good morning, and welcome to episode 66, where today I have Jared Kligerman, who is the president at the Think Tank and co-founder of Wonder Nut Butters. Now, Jared leads the team at The Think Tank, which is a full-service communications agency, which provides brands with strategic and creative tools to stand out from the crowd and connect with consumers where they consume, such as in-store and online. By leveraging this specific skill set, Jared and partner in life and business, Lindsay, created and launched Wonder Nut Butters, which was inspired by some of the most renowned food destinations and cuisines on earth and places that they have traveled to. Today's conversation covers the full gamut of the Wonder Startup story, with a particular focus on Jared's experience researching consumer and product trends to better understand how people think, which helped guide some early decisions made during the build out of their business model and marketing and sales approach. Now, before we start today's conversation with Jared, just a quick two-minute mention of our show sponsor, Foodpack. Now, I talk a lot about our stock bags and custom printed packaging here at Foodpack, which is a core pillar of what we do, and our quality is outstanding, pricing is spot on, and we work hard to nail down exactly what your product's barrier and shelf life needs are and how your consumer will interact with the bag. So this shouldn't be a difficult transaction for you, and it's something that we knock out of the park every day. One thing that I would like to highlight, though, is our equipment offering, like Cipramac vacuum chamber machines, Plexpack band sealers, and Repack tray sealers and thermoformers. Always start by sitting down to discuss your current output requirements and always ensure that the capital investment that you're about to embark on is capable of growing well into the future with you. As well as the equipment, we also have an outstanding in-house service and tech team, which is available to maintain and work on all of your equipment to keep you operational 24-7. So if you're looking to get into the retail market for the first time and looking for packaging, or you would like me to assess your existing packaging and equipment program, head on down into the show notes and check out our website by scrolling down and clicking on the link. And feel free to get in touch with me directly by emailing me at hayden at foodpack.ca or by calling me on 604-360-6790. Oh, and one more thing. If you get a lot of value out of this podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you shared the show with someone in your network. And a review and a rating on the podcast platform that you're listening to definitely goes a long way in making it easier for people in the startup CBG space to find. Thanks a lot. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aiden. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having you on, mate. You and I have been uh, having a bit of a discussion online for a while now, so I'm really glad to finally lock you in and, and have this conversation today. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. Excited to take part. Mate, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I actually grew up in Toronto, um, swore I would not stay here my entire life. And now I've gone and bought a house and started a family here. So uh, <laughs> I kind of ate that my words on that one. But yeah, uh, yeah I grew up here. Uh, left the city for about a little over five years to go do my undergrad degrees. I have two of them, uh, both in sciences uh, out of Bishop's University in Quebec. I did say that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I ended up coming back home to Toronto and then just ended up not leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, mate, I love Toronto. It's an awesome city. I've got family there and, and we haven't been out there for quite a while, obviously, because of COVID. But whenever we get out that way, it's a great time. 
You know, I, I, I will say now that I'm older, I appreciate what the city has to offer a lot yeah. more than I did when I was a kid. You know, I think there's always that thing. You don't want to be where you grow up mm-hmm. for a lot of us. And so for a lot of it was, you know, I grew up just outside Toronto. I'm actually from Thornhill for those of us from the area. Yeah. Um, so I spent most of my life defining myself not as a Torontonian. And so being classified as a Torontonian, I think also kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I rebelled against that and said I wasn't going to live here. And then yeah, it's a great city. There's a, has so much going on. Um, I love the diversity here, the yeah. amount of food. Um, yeah. oh, unreal. unreal. Dude, that is actually, yeah, the the primary thing that we love as well is the food. And, um, and you know, the, the summers. The summers out in Ontario are incredible. And the fall, obviously, the winter's not really going to comment on that because yeah. they're pretty harsh compared to out here on the West Coast. But, yeah, mate, I love the summers out there. It's awesome. It actually gets really, really hot and humid. Oh, super hot and humid. And I actually yeah. don't do well with the humidity. I prefer your uh, West Coast. I spent a summer way back when out on the Did island you? for a summer. Oh, yeah, awesome. I was as yeah. an assistant teacher for a program through the Peel Board of Education here in Ontario, but yeah. ran it on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an incredible summer and weather on the island for me is just perfect. Low 20s, no rain, a little bit of rain overnight, maybe. Oh, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's man. So there's, good. there's a hell of an exodus here. There are a lot of people are packing up and moving their lives across to the island just because the cost of living, number one. But I think the the pace of, you know, the island life is also something to, you know, really aspire to because we're all so busy and you know we do have clients over on the islands and you know they they're definitely on island time <laughs> oh <laughs> we, no- for sure. we notice it yeah for, for sure but it's funny i i uh i spent a very brief time with my old company mm. um out on the west coast we had a west coast office yep. and even the difference between toronto and vancouver oh it's nuts isn't it is- yeah I couldn't handle it for two, I, for two weeks I was there. And at the end of two weeks, I, I was, you know, I'm sure I could adjust if I had committed to living out there. Yeah. Yeah. But, Oh my goodness. I'm like, this is, I love how it's so relaxed, but I, my poor little Toronto brain just can't handle this. I need more stuff happening faster. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And you <laughs> know, being wild. in sales out here as well, like, you know, what I've really found is that the, you know, the um, decision-making process can be a little drawn out with some people over here just because they are so chill and so relaxed. So the way that we get around it is we just have a full pipeline and we just keep on hammering and, you know, keep on having a lot of discussions. It's more of like a volume game than, than anything. And um, yeah, that's how I sort of managed to deal with it. Cause where I come from in Melbourne, yeah, the lifestyle is busy, but then I think Melbourne and Sydney people would probably have the same thing going on, you know, as Toronto and Vancouver, whereas the Sydney people would be going, what are you talking about? This isn't busy. This is yeah, chill. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mate, you've got a lot going on in your life. You've got the Thick Tank, which is a full service communications agency, and you've also got your fingers in Wonder Nut Butters. So I'd love to have a discussion with you about both because they actually tie in quite nicely. So let's start with the Think Tank. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so the Think Tank, as you mentioned, we're a full service communications agency based here in Toronto, working with brands across North America to develop campaigns that drive trial, lift sales and grow baskets. What does that mean for those of us not in the industry? Really what it means is that we create cool contests, promotions and uh, campaigns that get you to want to go and buy that product, either, either because you're being incentivized on a price, on a prize, it just looks super cool. Um, so it, tactically, you'd see us things like your coupons, your blades in store, all the contests for trips around the world, which are finally starting to come back, fingers crossed, yeah. looking yep. at some for the summer. Awesome. Um, so that's really what we focus on. So we mostly work with the larger consumer packaged goods brands, mm. um, not because we don't want to work with smaller ones. We'd love to, and we do work with a number of mid-sized ones. The challenge really comes down to uh, cost of media and just general budget. 
Um, yeah. In-store media is very, very expensive. Everything on, especially in Canada, everything on in-store is just very expensive very quickly. Mm. So as much as we'd love to work with some of these smaller brands, when they come to us and say they want to do something, uh, very frequently we end up talking about budget and then yeah. we end up giving them a bunch of things they can go and execute and refer them off to any number of different agencies, depending on what that need is. Mm. So we really focus on that um, rapid growth emerging brand who had that cross-country presence uh, and is well-established or um, have enough of a relationship with the majors so that we can go in and talk about things like leveraging trade dollars to get secondary placements, to augment yeah. the shopper dollar. Like we just get really into the strategy. So, yeah. you know, really small campaigns aren't for us, mm -hmm. uh, but I love them. And I spend a huge amount of my time talking to brands who are way too small for us for two reasons. One, uh, you kind of mentioned about always having a full pipeline. Yeah. For what we do, because we are so niche, there's only so many brands who really can really leverage the right amount of value for us for it to make sense to work with them. Right. Mm -hmm. I turn down brands all the time because it doesn't make sense. Um, and so I have a whole host of agencies that I refer people to. So by starting to talk to them early on, it means I can help get them to the right people with the right advisors, mentors, staff, whatever, to get them to the point where eventually they might be able to work with us, which mm -hmm. is amazing. Yeah. The other side of it is I love the passion. I love the energy. I love just all that buzz that these founders or you know the marketing directors or VP of marketing of these emerging brands bring with them because what they're doing is so exciting and they mm. are um, really breaking down barriers sometimes and creating new niches and new segments. And so um, I talk to them to get myself pumped up, quite yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've been uh, at the helm of the think tank for the last coming up five years mm -hmm. uh, in full transparency. I do this part a lot. I talk about what we do. I give top line strategy. But when you start talking to me about how do we break down my hundred dollars? I say, oof, not my specialty. I have an incredible VP, uh, Sherry Ann, who heads up all of our client strategy. She is a genius. Um, so what I do to the broad level, she does at the tactical detail level. And it's incredible. And her counterpart, my other VP, uh, Justin, heads up our studio. Brilliant people at the agency. So they've been heading it up. I mean, she's been with us for, I think we're coming up 17 years, if not more. So she's been with us for a long time. Justin as well is coming up on a decade. It's mm -hmm. uh, been for over 30 years. Yeah. So I very much get to let them run and do what they do best. And it's yeah. been just such a privilege and pleasure to be able to get us running and doing what we do. Um, obviously, the last couple of years, given what we do, a little bit more challenging. I was going to say, and yeah, you guys would have really have had to get creative. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, there's a lot. There's also a lot of pinching and, and scrambling. And, you know, again, full kudos to my team who are just incredible people who uh, really buckled down and made sure that our core clients were receiving the utmost attention and care. Um, and so where we came out of this on this side, we actually in a decent place with a good stride as now things are opening up and brands are starting to reallocate budget back into their in-store activations or into some of the more traditional contests and promotions or some of those grander prizes that you mm. start to uh, benefit from having an agency get involved because not all of them always require an agency either. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of what the agency does in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very fun stuff. I, I love it. I, I can really, imagine. I love it. Um, yeah. Mate, you were suggesting that you primarily work with larger organizations that, that have the budget and they have the span and they potentially know exactly who their target audience is and they want to either activate and like a, a new segment uh, through programs and promotions and they also want to, you know, um, you know, increase their sales year over year. They want to keep on growing. So I, I would imagine sure. where does the conversation typically start if, uh, if an organization comes to you? Uh, that's a great question. So for the really large brands, they 
typically either have someone fully dedicated to shopper marketing or it's mm-hmm. part of their strategy. And so they will reach out when they have a specific need. So typically it's for a program. So, you know, we're actually a little late for summer. Summer would have been done in fall. But for argument's sake, summer is coming up close. Like, let's yep. think nice warm thoughts. I'm looking forward to barbecuing. <laughs> so, you know, a brand would approach us and say, hey, we really want to increase our sales velocity across our three major channels, which in Canada would be your three big retailers. Um, often it'll be very specific. We want to work just within the Sobeys chain. We want to have a basket growth campaign to see an increase in sales across these four brands in our portfolio. Here's our target audience. Who's who they are. Come back with some creative ideas and we put together a pitch. We go and we pitch it for smaller brands. Um, it's often because they recognize a need such as we have been at Sobeys for a long time. We really want to show our commitment to the brand. We want mm. to really blow it out in that channel this year. We're doing a ton on the trade side, but what else can we do and bring to this channel? Yeah. Um, and that's where we'll get brought in. Um, so it's a number of things on the bigger side when we get brought in for smaller brands, it's often uh, they recognize that they need to start having an impact on that final mile decision or the last mm. mile end of the decision. You know, there's a lot of priming that's required for in-store marketing to work. You know, it's why I refer so many people to social and digital agencies before they start coming to work with us. Um, and we do social digital too, to be very clear. Um, but again, it has to make sense as a campaign for us to get involved. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's where, where for all these brands who come to us, they say, well, what are you doing in your social? Are you doing digital? What are you doing to prime that consumer? Yeah. And so if you're doing a ton out there and you're finding people are getting to the store and then not converting because of whatever reason, that's where we'll often get a call as well and say, hey, you know, we're getting a lot of traffic there and we're getting some sales. Uh, but we're not seeing the volumes we are, like the velocities and volumes we thought yeah, we were. There's something we missing. Yeah, there's something missing. So what can we yeah. do in store? And so, again, depending on budgets, depending on objectives, depending on the categories, sometimes we'll say, hey, go back with your sales team and go and negotiate something from the trade side to help mm. raise that visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a quick glance through uh, one of our partners. We work with a shelf gram. kind of gives you a real, almost real-time view of what's happening at shelf. Okay. Um, and so I can hop on there sometimes and look at a brand and be like, oh, well, no wonder you're not getting the volumes you are. People are looking for you in the wrong category because you're a better for you brand over a natural. And I guarantee you from all your messaging, it sounds like your main aisle. So people just think you're out of stock or not listed at their location. They just can't find you. Yeah. You just can't find you. So let's talk about that. So you don't need me. You just need to go up that conversation in your social and you'll mm. see a lift, right? Yeah. So that's um, usually when we get called in. Because I spend so much time talking to smaller brands, very often they will call me and be like, hey, you know, can, we're thinking about trying to do this type of contest or we need our packaging redone or we need to get our brand redone and or we're launching, a new, done. We're launching yeah. a new skew yeah. all these small things and i just get the call yeah. and um i i say this and i like to think it's true that my reputation now within a lot of the founders i know is come to me with a project and there's no risk of ever of me ever suggesting us to do it unless i think we're actually a fit yeah so, you know, people have brought projects to me that are right on the cusp. And then there's one, we actually ended up working with them. Um, but, like, but he asked, like, hey, do you know anyone who does? I'm like, yeah, technically us. <laughs> like, I need some details first, but let me see. Um, but I had two other people lined up for him and he ended up working out that we could do it. And we've been dying to work together with each other for a couple of years. So we went for it. It's so important to position yourself as a trusted advisor or a consultant. You know, if people are coming to you because you know that you're going to give them honest advice, your reputation is just boosted. And at the end of the day, all you have is your reputation, like nothing else matters. So if people can come to you and that they know that you're not going to, you know, beat them, you know, beat around the bush, provide a heap of junk information just so that you can win the sale, which at the end of the day is just damaging your business and damaging their business. It's just means so much, you know? Oh, absolutely. And you know, quite honestly, um, so prior to coming to this industry, as in 
loosely termed management consulting, really learning and development focused around things like leadership, communication skills, all the soft skills and we did a lot of work in sales. And so we talked a lot about how sales is more and more about sales through relationship, not so much. Uh, and that's where at least where the sales start. If you just come in on a straight dollar or a straight, you know, the old school pitch, yeah. it's not going to get anywhere. And so um, when I came over to the world of marketing, one of my big fears is that I was entering this super cutthroat, you know, everything's the dollar madman style ass mm -hmm. world, which it's not, thankfully. Um, and a couple of the first people I met were relationship builders. And mm -hmm. so right away I went, oh, good. My really traditional style of selling, which is just sharing knowledge and giving ideas will work here. And so my approach to selling um, is actually very reflective of how, what I post on LinkedIn. Uh, because I recognize that most founders, most brand managers, most people who are working in on a, on a brand don't necessarily have time to be keeping an eye on everything going on in their category. Mm -hmm. The really excellent ones do, of course, because that's what's really important. But are they watching what's happening in the adjacent category? Maybe. Are they looking at what's going on in the adjacent category in both Canada and the US? If it's in their portfolio, for sure. But if it's not, 50-50. How about what's yeah. going on in Europe? Most certainly not. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, part of my job at the agency is biz dev, but also research and development. Mm -hmm. So a huge, all I do, not all I do, a large part of my time is spent doing research and dev about all the key categories that we care about, which are all center aisle, consumer packaged good. I have my own personal interest in food and bev, so I yep. pay a lot of attention to those spaces. Um, so when I'm reaching out to people, it's typically, hey, did you see this comp this contest that this person is running in your market, in your group stores in an adjacent category? Or, mm -hmm. hey, I just saw this really cool display over in Europe utilizing a touchscreen. Think about using that. Or mm -hmm. consumers are starting to look at these things. You know, it's an opportunity for you to position your brand in these ways. Yeah. So it's just it's my way of staying top of mind in a way that's adding value. And every once in a while, I'll drop a, hey, what are you working on? Just to kind of see if there's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but it's the best way to, to grow, to learn, to do everything is to ask questions, and just get as much knowledge as you can. So if I yeah. can be the source for that knowledge, yeah. excellent. That's kind of my whole goal. It's how I network. It's how I grow. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, um, I'm really glad that you discussed or that you brought up research and development because, you know, there is so much information out there and it can be overwhelming for a brand, you know, when they're online and they're looking at what can be done and, you know, what possibilities and opportunities there are. But the one thing that I've found, no matter what company I work for, when I'm having a conversation with marketing, everybody wants to know what the return on that marketing dollar is on that investment. And so I can imagine that a lot of people would come to you and say, hey, listen, I know that my spend here and working with you is X, but what am I going to see in return for that spend? How, where does that discussion usually go? And do you guys have sort of KPIs in place or what are you exactly looking for to see if um, the sell through or to see whether you've actually made an impact and had some uplift on the on the sales yeah for sure so our kpis are typically measured by sales numbers yeah. right so if we're yeah. doing you know if there's a coupon involved excellent if it's online there's some type of code and tracking built in so we yeah. can measure the success rate of that yeah um for contest entries you know we have all these metrics that we use yeah. to that we are measured on on our success so even when we're running a predominantly in social digital campaign Impressions are important. Yeah. Click through is important. Yeah. Yeah. We focus much more on did that close? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the more steps there are between that last message and that close, the mm. less accurate we're able to provide any type of guess as to how successful something to be is going mm. to be. You know, um, if I can get them to your website, amazing. But if your website's a disaster and it takes six pages for someone to get from the page we're directing them to, to, to buy, people are going to abandon carts like wild and yeah. we're going to look like garbage. Yeah. 
right? So we spend a lot of time trying to figure, make sure that all that's optimized. In-store is even more challenging, right? Because yeah. then you have out-of-stocks, you've got supply chains, you've got competitors running, you've got so much going on. Yeah. So we really look at, um, we have some benchmark numbers we use, Yeah. Uh, but really it comes down to what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. What's the key thing, key thing for you? Because that's what we're going to be measured against. And yeah. that's all we care about at that point. Yeah. And so when we develop our campaigns, uh, you know, so I'm involved in some of the strategy because I do the, the bigger broad picture R&D. My two VPs have been doing this for a very long time and across multiple industries and categories. So when we develop our campaigns, they're optimized based on what the brand has told us, the information that they've provided um, about their target audience, et cetera, the experience of the VPs. And then I layer on everything else that I can find from my own research side, because I just have these little files on different categories. I can pull on trends and consumer behavior and um, what's coming down the pipeline um, in the next little while, as well as using platforms like Shelfgram. So we can mm. go back and look at a specific category over the last five years to see what the main um, campaigns or contests have been in store. So as an example, every year for the last decade, there's been someone offering a free barbecue. Mm. It's just the thing. It's just a thing, you know. It's, yeah, it's exactly. just the thing. I know <laughs> it, I can prove it. I did this huge um, push back in September. Uh, if you dig to my LinkedIn, you can find it. The number of school bus displays yeah. that are in store is too much. Yeah. Too much. You need to find a new idea. Yeah. Um, to the point, and I said right then and there that when you have that many school buses, consumers and staff are going to get confused about which product goes where and who you're buying. And sure yeah. enough, I found a display of one brand with another brand's um, displayer smack in the middle. Really? So, yeah. Yeah. The old buses with modular units. They yeah. all look the same. It's a yellow yeah. box with yeah. stuff in it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. I get it. It's hard to know. Um, so we kind of layer all that on to make sure that what we bring forward is what we believe will generate the highest success rate. Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately at the end of the day, we're pitching for most of these really large campaigns. And so it comes down to the brand team on whether or not they believe in our strategy and how we're allocating their budget and whether or not aligns to what they expect and what they've spent elsewhere. Um, you know, so they may not know what the success of a coupon will be, but they know what a general spend on social would be. So when they see how we're allocating budget towards their social, they go, okay, that makes sense. I understand that part. And you explain that part. I understand what this is doing. So now we're just going to measure you on the success rate. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do our jobs, we don't get another project. Yeah. We get a lot of repeat projects. Yeah. That's a good sign. (laughs) Yeah. Mate. So with everything that you've learned at the think tank and looking through the lens of the audience of this podcast, who are, you know, startup, you know, small to medium sized business owners and operators, basically entrepreneurs out there, Enter Wonder Nut Butters, which is your new business that you have just got up and running, which is uh, basically internationally spiced nut butters inspired by the most flavorful places on earth you've got. So very easy to understand. I've been on your website. It looks delicious. But I can imagine having a small little startup, as you discussed, and having a small shoestring budget, you would be trying to apply as much as what you've learned to the think tank as possible. So I thought it could be a really good place to have a conversation based on all of your learnings, how you are sort of applying all of that to Wonder Nut Butters. So if you just want to give a little bit of context to sort of one and up butters, where it came from, where the idea came from and what you're trying to execute on and, uh, and what your strategy is around it as well, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Wandered up but is such an anomaly in so many ways for me because I'm not an idea guy. I'm the one yep. you come to with an idea and I either help you crash it and burn it 
<laughs> or help you build it or advise you to do one of the two. And with a lot of questions about what I would look for before I would ever do one of the two. Yeah. Um, but ideas aren't my thing. And so um, I think during, so over the pandemic, you know, we kind of mentioned things that the agency kind of slowed a little yeah. bit. And the reality is I was having tons of conversations, but there's just no business, right? Yeah. There's why are you going to ask for business when you know there's no business? Well, there? people cut their budgets and yeah, focused on All the lifeblood of their business. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and we picked up some business and we were doing stuff, but you know, it it was what it was. So I think my brain went a little mushy because simultaneously the amount of research coming out became very static, right? Things Mm -hmm. weren't moving as quickly because we were all stuck at home. How much is stuff going to really change when we're all stuck at home? Yeah. Um, and so I had a few different ideas, um, over the summer of 2021, I guess summer of 2020 would have been summer of 2020. Um, researched one out, uh, found another company who had tried it and bombed out for very good reasons. So I did not pursue that one. Um, and then I had this crazy idea while I was making this cheap, like stir fry dish, essentially. Um, you know, it's one of these things you may have made back in the day in undergrad, some peanut butter, some soy sauce, sriracha, maybe lime juice. Yeah. yeah it's, it's there, right? It's yep. Thai. Yeah. And as I was making it, I went, you know what? I just, this needs the extra spices, man. It needs the lemongrass. It needs the lime leaf. It needs some ginger. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of clicked that that would make a savory peanut butter. And there's no savory peanut butters on the market. And I like savory more than sweets. Mm, so I, as I thought about that, I turned and there was a pot on the stove that we had used two days before clean. I just hadn't put it away yet. Um, that we had used to make this Moroccan stew that also uses peanut butter as a main ingredient. I'm like, oh my God, that's like cinnamon and ginger. Those are flavors that people already understand. And I asked my wife, I'm like, Lindsay, do you think there's an idea here about savory peanut butter? And she said, I don't know. Go do what you do best. Come back to me and tell me if there's something there. <laughs> so yeah. that, that's fair. That's very fair. So um, like so many um, founders and entrepreneurs out there, I had this crazy idea. So I went and did research. And it's, um, you know, I mentioned I come from a background in sciences. Yes. Um, so research is kind of one of my major fortes. And, one yeah, of my and this is things. what I wanted to dig in with you, the market research and product development. So let's, yeah, keep that let's in dig, mind. Let's dig right yep. into it. So, yep. you know, I came into this with this concept of creating a savory peanut butter. That was really what I wanted to do, yep. um, which could be used in a sweet application, but I wanted the 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 positioning to be around it being savory. Mm-hmm. And so I started typing it in to Google because that's where we started all these things. And so mm-hmm. I started typing in things like savory peanut butter. And um, because it was the Thai flavors that got me onto it, I put in Thai peanut butter. And through this search, I realized a couple things. One, that there seemed to be nobody on the market really doing this, especially in Canada. And then I found two companies in the US who were doing somewhat similar but not exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. So there's one on the East Coast um, who have flavors like coconut lime and they have a chai, uh, but they also have sugars added to theirs. Family-run business. I haven't actually talked to them. They sound amazing. I'd love to try their stuff. They still yep. ship up here. Yeah. Um, the other one's on the West Coast called Elliot's and their positioning is they're an adult nut butter. So their mm. thing is that they are spicy or mm. like big adult flavors like espresso cocoa nib yep. or cacao nibs or other. Yeah. Um, so they had a spicy tie. And so as I started to read, you know, as I'm starting to look into peanut butters and figure out if there's a gap there, simultaneously, I'm reaching out to people I know in the industry who do either the exact same thing or complementary things in terms of butters. So I'm reaching out to peanut butter manufacturers, I'm reaching out to nut butter makers, reaching out to roasted nut people, people who make jams. And I'm talking to all of them about you know, how do they go to market? You know, what are their challenges in production? How are they sourcing? Because I'm trying to source as much from Canada as possible. Unfortunately, not fully feasible, but I do mm. the best I can. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to talk to all of them about how they got started. And um, 
in Canada, I had some great conversations with people around, you know, pricing. And because I talked to so many founders as, as my main job, a lot of the challenges that they brought up are things that I've heard many, many times before. Like, you know, make sure your pricing is really locked down before you go out there. You know, you need a lot more margin than you think you do on your price. Yep. You're also going to need a lot more money and capital than you think you're going to need. You're going to need a yep. lot more time than you think you need. And so, um, but the big one for me is talking to the gang at Elliott. So they were mm -hmm. US. So unlike a couple of Canadian companies um, who, and with full understanding, um, weren't so open about talking how they make their products, seeing yep. I'm technically a competitor in the loosest sense. Yeah. Um, Elliot didn't give a crap because they're like, you're in Canada, we're in the US, you're not coming to our market Game anytime on. soon. Yeah, like, exactly. We're, we're going up against the, the crafts of the world. So yep. if you can help us knock them down a couple of pegs, we're in. Yeah. So they told me their entire process and what they did, and they sent me up some of theirs. And that wow. was actually um, amazing because it allowed me to try a product that I was trying to make. And I knew what I liked and didn't like about it, mm -hmm. which helped me immensely when it came to making mine. Mm. Um, so, you know, I spent I spent probably about two months just doing research in and around, you know, peanut butters, who the players are, going out to all the different retailers, taking pictures of all the shelves, taking pictures of all the labels, seeing yep. tracking and following all the key accounts on social media and how they were playing. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I say key accounts, I spent less time looking at the big two or three brands than I did the five challenger brands on both sides of the border. Yeah. Yeah. Because the big brands, their social comes in waves, <laughs> comes in waves depending on how important it is to them at any given point. Yeah. For small brands, it's their lifeblood, right? It's yeah. how we raised awareness, especially in the last couple of years when we can't yeah. be at farmers markets and trade shows and events. Yeah. So following how they've positioned themselves and how you position yourself becomes very important. And mm. through all this, following in research, I re realized savory was the wrong terminology to use. And that's mm. what shifted us from a savory, a line of savory peanut butters to a line of globally, or we've actually changed it up now too. So now we're globally spiced, globally spiced, um, nut butters and peanut butters currently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that ended up influencing what we named them because mm. we named them after the countries. Mm -hmm. We could just as easily have called them, you know, lemongrass and lime leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I just had the, the ingredients listed. There's a um, an amazing hot sauce up here in uh, in over here in Toronto, Durham region, actually called Pepper North. They just went through a whole rebrand and uh, just announced today, actually, which is why I'm softly plugging them. March first, they just announced it, uh, but they just updated all their labels and the names of their product from these very fun, creative names to very straightforward blueberry, scorpion, pepper. Right. It is now very easy to understand what that hot sauce is. And I think a lot of that's probably being driven by consumers looking for a really clear and easy to understand name that aligns to the brand. Yeah. So if you're called Pepper North, they're looking to know what the pepper is. They want to know. Yeah. They want to know. And so yep. for us, given that we are taking this global approach, um, it's why we've gone with the the country names we've gone with because it's the cuisines we cook and we love and we eat all the time, which is yep. why we've chosen the ones that we've launched with and we're trying to decide on our next flavor right now. Yeah. Um, but the leader is also the one that we have the most personal connection with. That's awesome. So you started off with a, a whole bunch of assumptions and then you went out there and you did some research and then you came up with some hypothesis, right? That you needed to validate. Yep. So sure what did. was some of the processes that you went through to validate some of your hypothesis? Right. So the, the two the two big things I think we you need to look at right away are one, is there actually a market and demand for your product? Yeah. So that that's requires the you test. Yep. That's a big one. So yep. that's testing out the audience, see mm -hmm. what they think. Yep. Other side is seeing whether or not you can create that product and sell it in a way that's sustainable. Yeah. 
both of those you need to know before you start investing crazy cash, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. So um, in my case, in the way, you know, there's a guy down in the, in the US, his name's uh, Mark Samuel, he's the founder of I1 Organics. So finance is a little bit different in the US than here. The economy is a little bit different. So in the US, his whole approach to this is you spend, take a, you know, a thousand bucks, you create a hundred units of whatever it is you want to make, or sorry, you create 200 units of whatever it is you want to make. You yep. give away half of them to your target audience, mm-hmm. then you ask them to buy the other half. And if they all buy it, you know, your product's solid. Mm-hmm. And it's a great way to do it because um, costs in the US are just so, so much substantially cheaper than they are here. It's kind of yeah. crazy on a lot of food stuff in particular. Um, so I kind of did a similar approach, um, not quite as direct because I didn't have that type of capital, but I basically created a whole bunch of samples and I went out to a target audience and said, hey, try this and rank me on this anonymous survey. Tell me what you think. Yeah. And so um, this was done in the middle of pandemic. Uh, this is like December 2020. So we were kind of like in between waves here in Toronto. And sorry, how many people did you sample it with? So in my case, uh, it ended up being somewhere between 90 and 100. The okay. number's are a little iffy because I did it by household. Yeah. So what I ended yeah. up doing was reaching out to all my friends and family who I knew would be interested, who were peanut butter eaters, who had the yeah. right lifestyles. Yeah. Um, and it was a mix. So some friends, some family, a lot of industry colleagues too. And what was um, the caveat I'd put in if you're using friends or family is that it's got to be anonymous and mm-hmm. you have to be prepared for the friends and family bias. Yeah. So I did on a couple of different ways. So one, I dropped the samples off to everybody which mm-hmm. allowed me to talk to them about what it was, but it also allowed me to level a really um, level in on how serious this feedback was because at the time, um, the process I was looking at was going to require me to have to finance a $40,000 piece of equipment. Right. Did not do that. Did not have the means to do it then. Don't have them now. And so happy I didn't. But yeah. um, I was prepared to do it because if this had enough, if it had enough support, it was worth the risk. But this is also money being drawn away from my daughter's future. Yeah, Friends and family don't care so much about me. They care a lot about my daughter, on the other hand. Mm-hmm. So with each one, I said, hey, so here it is. It's an anonymous survey. So I really need to be honest because I'm about to potentially drop $40,000 out of Sophie's future. So just keep in mind, if you see me the wrong way, you're hurting my daughter. And of course, they took this all very seriously. So uh, the feedback I got back um, was a combination of qualitative and quantitative. Yep have to have both um and then i did a trimmed average because as much as i tried to filter out those who were just not peanut butter liker uh, peanut butter fans or those who don't eat international flavors who weren't be fans there was a couple who were way down on the extreme end and there's a couple who are probably arguably fair numbers to include in the metrics but i still mm-hmm. thought they were too high yep. so i trimmed it off um, and then i wasn't looking for 90 to 100 percent loving it yeah too, too high would yeah. make me way too uncomfortable yeah so i was actually looking for between 80 and 85 is my okay. number yeah anything under 80 percent. this is a hyper targeted audience if i can get 80 percent of people to be like yeah this is awesome i would totally buy this mm-hmm. what the hell am i wasting my time with mm-hmm. um, and then anything over 85 is just like you know what that's that that upper 15 is where that friends and family bias really comes into play a lot mm. um and if it was too high i would i just wouldn't feel comfortable about going forward and <laughs> And were you primarily asking questions when you were dropping the samples off? Was it more around you wanted feedback on the flavor profile, on the consistency, on the fact that, you know, were you discussing price points? Like what kind of questions were you asking? 
Uh, I did everything except price points. Okay. So, yep. so I had, I asked about the flavor. I asked about the concept, whether they would buy it. I had some really early stage mock-ups of labels and branding mm -hmm. design yep. positioning. Yeah. So I got a really good sense of whether there would be interest because mm -hmm. price. I, so as I was figuring that out, I was simultaneously pricing out what it would actually cost for me to make this. Yeah which is a lot of numbers, right? Cause it's not just the manufacturing of the product. You also have to figure out your overhead costs, which yeah. is your things like your insurance, your banking, Shopify, all, all the jazz, right? Everything. So everything. And some of our, the spices I use, one in particular is really tricky to find in Canada. Excuse me. In fact, um, I don't have a good Canadian supplier right now. I'm literally about to order from an American supplier. And mm -hmm. even in the U S there's only three suppliers okay. that I can find who have this product. It's really yep. expensive as well. Um, so it took me a long time. It took me up until two months before we actually like went in for our first production day to actually secure someone for my batch runs. Mm -hmm. So I, um, so that's the other reason why I wanted to make sure that my numbers made sense from that standpoint, but it's also the comments were equally as important to me because mm -hmm. all the flavors end up coming in around 83%, like yeah. the rate where I wanted it to be quite honestly. And then the comments showed me why it wasn't higher because it was very legitimate feedback around, um, you know, the ginger is too strong. It's too hot. It's burning out my palate. Um, you know, I'm starting to get this kind of bitter aftertaste in the tie. I'm not sure where it's coming from, but you need to address that. So like really critical feedback. Some of which I'd already identified, like the bitter in the tie was a big red flag for me, even before I took the samples out, but I ran out of time and <laughs> I needed to know if there was a, if it was viable from at least an interest standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, and there was, which is great. Um, so based on all of that, I knew I had a product of interest as I figured out my pricing. Um, it, it took a while, but basically, you know, depending on who you talk to, you'll hear, you basically need to write a 50% uh, above COGS plus an additional, you know, 20 to 40% to be sustainable. Those numbers right. aren't wrong, right? You know, yep. it depends on what your, what your business model is, depends on yep. how many layers you need to build in, you know, retailers are looking for 30 to 40 points, distributors, 10 to 30 brokers about the same, yep. back all that in. Plus you got freight and shipping costs. Mm -hmm. Hey, very quickly whittles down. Um, at the same time, even for a product like mine, I'm using spices. They come at a premium. Yep. There are other premium products on the market who are using other ad other adjuncts, whether it's extra um, oils in the case of fatso, mm -hmm. uh, or extra you know nutritional benefit products like Lovejoy. So I have to be priced competitively against them, and yeah. so it's a really fine balancing act between it all. And so I finally locked down a number that I thought would make sense. And then I went back out to about a quarter of the people I had sampled the first time around and ran the number past them. Mm. Um, so it was a fair number. Mm -hmm. Um, and the feedback I got across the board was it's a bit high, but I think it, I think I would do it. Yeah. So here's the other side of it. No matter how much testing you do and how much research you do until you actually hit play, you don't fully know. Yeah. And so, um, we launched it at a price and we've actually reduced it a little bit. We've dropped it by 25 cents, mm -hmm. not a big drop, but, uh, more of a psychological it's a psychological Barrier. yeah yeah yep. big time big time um but that's how kind of how we figured out our our pricing was working through that algorithm of you know if we're doing direct to consumer mm. so you know the, the other thing that people don't think about is shipping yeah. or that's yeah. thought it's about so a lot expensive but not in Canada. enough it is yeah. so expensive so yeah. um you know i'm actually thinking about doing a whole post about this i'm going to share it here too because i don't know how many people will actually see my post um 
to give you a quick breakdown, so my trio pack for Wander sell mm-hmm. retails for $27. Yep. It is our top seller because you get one of each flavor. Why wouldn't you? We're a yep. heavy product, right? We're just shy of three kilograms. So it's, yep. it's heavy for sure. Yep. So I'll yep. keep, that under, keep that in mind. So I can see the jars behind you on the shelf. They look great. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. Oh, thank you. They're somewhere <laughs> over there. There you go. There they are. Yeah. I'll mirror it in the camera. Um, <laughs> so to ship that package, my rates have gone up by over a dollar in the last six months with Canada Post. Yeah. So to ship that now within the GTA, which is mm-hmm. what I would like my primary market to be, mm-hmm. Um, it is now between twelve and fourteen dollars to ship that box. Mm-hmm. If I go through outside of that to the rest of Ontario, that's now fourteen. I can actually get down to, to twelve at a few. So twelve to sixteen dollars. Mm-hmm. Rest of Canada is now pushing. There's a couple of places that I've kind of get, creep up to the eighteen dollar mark to ship that box that I'm yeah. selling for twenty seven dollars. As a reminder, yeah. But let's say best case scenario, it's in the city of Toronto. Shipping cost alone. Average it out, say it's 12 bucks, right? Yeah. That leaves $15 left over. There's now packaging involved in that, mm-hmm. the box, the labels, all of that. So that's easily another dollar, um, if not more, depending on how you pack, if you're using um, recyclable materials, all the, that type of good stuff. Yeah. So now we're down to $11. So um, this is not an accurate representation, but for yeah. arguments, say my product, actually, if you work in all the hours and everything else, depending on the skew and the spices in it, it costs between four and five fifty per jar to yeah. make. Yeah. So there's three of those in that. And if you add that all up, I think you'll now find that right now below zero. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's one of those things that when you launch a brand, you're like, oh, we'll do, we'll, you know, we'll get people to pay for shipping. But Amazon in particular. I was going to say Amazon's just shredded that. It's yeah. shredded it. Everyone expects free shipping mm-hmm. and people don't think about, you know, so if you're not paying for shipping, who is? Because mm-hmm. someone is. And so that's where, I, I mean, I've said this for a very long time and I continue to say that direct to consumer, unless you are a, a very low cog with high margin product or a very light product, or you are a truly unique product that people will constantly come back to you for, they can sign up for um, a subscription. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, direct to consumer is just a channel. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be the channel mm-hmm. mostly because your costs are just as high, if not higher than what they are going to a retailer. And depending on the retailer, you can do everything like, um, this, these are local stores. They don't mean much to the broader audience, but there's stores where you can just go and pay a rent to be on shelf. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Listing fees would be what you would call it anyone else, except then you still have to pay for other stuff. At kind of like, retailers. are you thinking like consignment, like a consignment program? It's so those consignments a little bit, different um, to a degree so this is because i'm so i have a so i have a couple places where i'm listed as on consignment Mm -hmm. right so my products listed there i don't pay anything until and they don't pay me anything unless i sell something yeah and then you Um, take the stock back if it doesn't sell at all yeah correct yeah so i've got that with one online retailer yeah i have um one brick and mortar i had two i dropped one of them might Mm -hmm. go back um but two where i just pay a monthly fee it's like i'm paying rent to be on the shelf Mm -hmm. however much i sell is how much i take home Mm-hmm. So I don't lose any extra money, but if I don't move enough units, I lose lose cash. It's mm-hmm. like owning a mini storefront, essentially. Yep, yep. Um, so that's a decent model. Mm-hmm. Um, what you really want is the wholesale, right? Now, the challenge with wholesale is that your wholesale price isn't your list price. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're if you're making your product for five bucks and you're trying to sell it for 10 to the consumer, you're going to be selling it for, you know, six fifty seven ish um, to that retailer wholesale. Yeah. Yep. But that's really where... Um, I, in my opinion, and from what I've seen so far through my experience, both in Wander and with talking to other brands, that's really where you're going to get your best margins when you're just starting out in particular is those places where they'll buy your product, even at wholesale, mm. uh, especially if you can deliver it yourself, which yeah. 
most places when you're starting off they're all local so you can it's going to give you actually the biggest margin mm. uh, across the board and it's the easiest for you to track because once the sale is made it's cash in your pocket mm-hmm. right it's a it's a done sale whereas consignment you're waiting for that to sell before the money comes in so you never know when it's going to be there and yep. rent you're paying money out front on the hope you move enough traffic but you're also um, you're not the retailer, but you still have to drive all that traffic there. But if it's a small little one out in a certain area, you can only do so much to drive additional volume of traffic there. So you really have to rely on that retailer to help push your product, which yeah. is a 50-50 gamble if they don't understand it or they don't like it or um, they just aren't staffed or equipped to properly promote all the brands and their establishments, which to be fair, they're not, they never said they were going to and nor are yep. they equipped to do it, but yep. really that's what you need to be successful there. Um, it just gets really challenging. And so mm-hmm. it's one of those things as I was planning out how we go to market with Wander, um, that was a big piece for me was I didn't want to be direct to consumer for very long. I wanted to do it for, you know, three, four months and then use those sales to turn around and go to retail stores and be like, hey, here's my sales in the last three, four months. I think we can do at least that in your stores. And that's not how it happened. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the big, big missteps I made um, had all the intentions, had it all planned out and then mm-hmm. life, life got in the way. Yeah. Um, as it so often does. But the amount of pre-launch awareness you need is huge. Mm-hmm. And I really dropped the ball on doing that properly. Okay. Um, there's, uh, there's a brand. So let me back up. So there's a brand who's doing this really well called Effin Snacks or Effin Good Snacks. Um, I think it's Damien Laws, the founder. Okay. Um, I don't, don't know him, not affiliated. I, I've been watching him develop his brand. So he hasn't launched yet and he's already pre-sold thousands of units. Wow. Yeah. And that's how you do it. And that's what I had the intentions of doing in life. Um, and that's why I screwed up royally. Because I had a very minimal following of mm-hmm. mostly my existing network who mm-hmm. knew about Wander when we launched. And yep. I wanted to be triple that. Yeah. And so, you know, um, the way he's built it out is exactly what I had planned. And I will definitely share this right now. Which yeah. Is- so exactly. So if you had a do-over, an opportunity for a do-over in this front, what was the the model that he executed on that you would execute on? Um so for starters, yeah. get all your social media and awareness engines started mm-hmm. a minimum of six months before you actually have products ready to launch. Yeah. Right? yeah. So that was my plan. And I got maybe a month and a half of it. Yeah. So and, I just and what platforms is he on? What platforms? So, I, so he's on TikTok, Insta, and Facebook, I believe. I yeah. follow him mostly on LinkedIn, truthfully. And okay. I see the occasional stuff he pops up on Insta and TikTok as if it's shared through yeah. to, to LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, uh, but what he's doing and what he's doing so well is he's just creating content, talking about the journey, what he's mm. doing, what the product is, while still jumping on some of the trends and sharing the info. And mm. more importantly, he's getting people to sign up. And then as he gets people to sign up for his newsletters, because uh, that's the big goal in your pre-launch is get people's yeah. contacts, right? Because that everyone talks about how data is key. It is. Um, and you need to be thinking about how you're going to gather and how you're going to use it. Mm. So social following is great. A lot trickier to use having someone's name, first name, last name, email, mm. mailing address, even better if you can get a pre order plus a phone number. Oh my goodness, that is more You've info than oh, yeah. that's everything you need. Yeah, so you know, he's sending out newsletters frequently talking about where he's at, the updates. Um, he has a hyper engaged community around him, right? Mm. So he hasn't even launched, he sold thousands of units, and that means when he goes to produce, yeah, he'll have to lay out. So, first of all, he already has cash coming in from pre order. Mm brilliant yeah right even if he doesn't it means he's guaranteed to make that money in the second he's ready to hit go yeah 
So from a cash flow standpoint and from a financial standpoint, he's not worrying about ebbs and flows. He knows he's going to sell his first bunch instantly, mm-hmm. which I can tell you, um, my projected numbers were far more aggressive than I thought, to be fair. So part of the reason I didn't have my many months of launch was um, timing of things got really screwed around on me for a bunch of reasons. Um, another big piece of it, though, was the marketing budget I had planned to use to help speed some of this up had to get allocated into pieces of machinery got that you. I was not expecting to have happen. Yeah. Um, but I'm an allergen, peanut butter. So um, finding a kitchen, commercial yeah. kitchen to work out of is tricky. Yeah. Um, you have to be hyper aware and vigilant when you're working with it. And I am, you know, I come from a bio background mm-hmm. and I have friends, family with allergies. I think mm-hmm. very seriously as well. Yeah. Um, so it was a no break. It wasn't even a discussion about whether or not I had to buy the pieces I did. Um, and full kudos to my kitchen, Manning Canning, Mwah, wonderful, wonderful human beings there. Um, but it meant that my marketing budget was gone. Like yep. I had no dollars anymore. Went from mm-hmm. literally this nice robust amount to zero. Um, and he hasn't had a crazy budget either, but it meant that he can use some of that budget that I would have to use for different things, so yep. like equipment. He can just put it right into the marketing. Yeah. Um, it's just so brilliant. So, I mean, that's one of the big pieces I would say too, is as you ramp up, you don't have to spend money. You know, Erica over at Brodo talks about this a lot, how she's managed. She's great, isn't she? She's, out. she's yeah. amazing. I had her on the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. So she's, yeah. she's a, a excellent example of what is possible organically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's also really important to caveat that with, you know, she is brilliant. She knows what she's doing on that platform. Yeah. And if there is one thing that I have stressed for years and years and years with everyone I talk to is that um, knowing isn't the same as doing. Yeah. And especially when it comes to things like social or with mm-hmm. products or with mm-hmm. anything else, um, you can apply every single tactic that made someone else successful and still fail. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that's the reality. And so, you know, I'm on TikTok. I've been posting at least once a day for over six months on TikTok. Yeah. I haven't broken 300 followers. I've had one post hit tens of thousands. I think I'm up to like 18,000 people now have seen it. Yeah. Um, I've generated zero sales from that platform. Yeah. Um, and so, so sorry, you know, should I be posting three to four times a day? Yeah, of course I should. I don't have time for that because I have yeah. a full-time job and a daughter. Yes. And that's the other side too, is that it takes a lot of time to create all this content. <laughs> it really right? does. Yeah. Right. Like if you're a full-time founder, and this is all you're doing. This is not to, to minimize this in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So I'm this very carefully. But if you're a full-time founder of a startup, you have more time available to you to create content because mm-hmm. I would describe that as your marketing time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's different than for someone like myself where I've got to carve out specialty time to create yeah. content. For you, it's marketing. Yeah. What else are you going to be doing with your time? You're producing, you're calling and doing sales and you're marketing and you're small. It's not yeah. like you have hundreds of vendors you've got to be dealing with. Yeah. You're probably yeah. dealing with a couple of dozens. You have, it's not a luxury, um, but you have additional bandwidth within your day to, to create that. But this yeah. is still not to minimize how much time you need to set aside. No, I, I totally yeah, understand for, what you're saying. Yeah. Especially for TikTok, yeah. where it's so hard to repurpose TikTok stuff because so mm-hmm. much of it's trends. Trends yeah. don't necessarily do well on other platforms and maybe on reels. Reels, you'll get some of them crossover. Yeah. Lots of them you can't repurpose. Yeah. yeah. So it's, and you know, as someone who preaches, if you're doing a shoot, you better be getting at least, for me, it's at least six pieces of content out of that. Yeah. You talk to those who are pros of this, they say two dozen pieces, right? Yeah. They, get, they go crazy because they cut everything up into micro little bits. I think Gary they, V, yeah, says two dozen at least. Yeah. Gary V talks about, so yeah. 
yes to what he says. Yeah. I'll also say that when he talks about doing that, he's talking about his own thing when he's given an hour long webinar yeah. and filmed it all and cut that down to make his couple dozen pieces. So and he's got somebody shoot, splicing it up for him as well. He's, right. he's got a team. So, yeah. Right. So, but if you're doing a recipe, which yep. I do all the time for my content, yep. right? So when I go into it, I'm thinking, okay, I've got a long form and a short term of their full recipe. Mm-hmm. I've got the three stage you know, ingredient mix, final products. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a couple of those and different cuts depending on the platform. Uh, you're obviously going to have anywhere from one to six product shots of the, you know, all the ingredients and then the final pictures. Um, if you're really good at photography and you have all the stuff to do it, you probably do even more photos at the end. So you can repurpose that for posts on Facebook, Insta down the way. Mm-hmm. So you're, I'm probably in close to a couple dozen pieces. The yep. thing is that not all my shots are as pretty and nice. Yeah. Um, so I don't get to maximize it as much, but on platforms like TikTok, you can get away with some meh content here and there mm-hmm. and it's fine. Mate, you've just given us a huge snapshot into what's going on. And I know that you've only been operating this business. It's almost 12 months. It was February 2021, wasn't it? Um, so technically, sort of. So I think we set up all of our accounts yeah. um, on, in February. I had the idea in August of 2020 is kind of when I said I kind of had the idea. Yeah. Because I can't remember exactly. Yeah. Um, and then we started selling product August 2021. Yeah. 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 So yeah. now that you've got the product out into the world, what kind of real life information and feedback are you getting from consumers that you don't know? I don't know. Um, As in like, you don't know these people. So this is like real life consumer oh, from, from feedback. That yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Thank you for yeah. clarifying. That makes yeah. sense. so no much easier. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't want to go with this. Um, it's been fantastic uh, to get the feedback. And actually the best feedback I've gotten from complete strangers came mm-hmm. this past weekend where we were at an event where we could sample for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. That means a lot. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a difference. Yeah. And um, it made more concrete some beliefs we had and challenged some assumptions we had mm-hmm. around um, flavor preferences and mm-hmm. understanding of product. Yeah. Um, so my wife and I go back and forth this all the time about which product, which flavor we think is the most popular and why we think which one people gravitate towards because mm. she loves the tie. You know, yeah. it's the one that's tied the whole idea, right? Yeah. So there's a certain spot in my heart for it, but I actually love our Indian way more. And I mm-hmm. always expect people to gravitate towards the Moroccan because yeah. cinnamon ginger dominant. And so when you say that, people are like, okay, cinnamon ginger, I get that. Yeah. So it's an immediate click. Um, and it is actually our top seller. But what was great in letting people sample is that you could see people's reactions. And so you know, the people who didn't like a certain flavor, a certain flavor, it was really interesting to see that they didn't say, oh, I just don't like that at all. It's there's something in it. I don't like, like it was mm. very specific that there's a spice in it. They didn't like, or, mm. oh yeah, no, that combination isn't for me. Yeah. Cause you don't like Indian food. Oh, yeah. well, duh, if you don't like those flavors, you're not, not going to like this. That's yeah. Cool. But like, and, and they knew that going in. So I had, I had this one guy who tried and he's like, I'm probably not going to like this one. I don't, I think I'm going to like the tie. I don't think I'm going to like this one. They try. He's like, yeah, no, not at all. Not, not even a bit. He had the tie. He's like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I want. Give me a jar. Right. And so wow. that was, that interaction was really neat and it helped. Um, it helped solidify some of what we thought around flavor preferences and also mm. highlighted how important it is to be able to sample again, which I've known forever talking to all the founders I know in food and bev, but yeah. to exper- again, to experience just makes that theory either true or not true. And this just really landed how important that part was. Yeah. Um, and it also re-emphasized that people inherently understood that it was a spiced peanut butter mm. versus a peanut butter using peanuts from that place of the world, which was a concern a couple of people had flagged right. early on. Yeah, like coffee. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought about that a little bit too, and I kind of dismissed it offhandedly. And there were a few comments from people over our, our you know, the six 
seven months have been in existence, um, of people kind of saying, oh, so you're using peanuts from that country. Um, but for the most part, people immediately like, oh, that's interesting. What spices? Like, there's actually people who said, like, what spices are in there right out the gates? Mm-hmm. So that really helped. Um, again, just giving more information about how people view the product, what they think about when we when we when they see the product, and yep. um, it's partly why we switched from international to global. Mm-hmm. in our terminology is that people are saying global more than international. Mm. It, re- it resonated with them more. Mm-hmm. I think because it's happier. Yeah. Um, and so, and this is the thing, you know, when you're starting a business, you've got to be fluid and you, yep. most importantly, you've got to be prepared to be wrong. Yes. Um, and I've, like I said, you know, I've, I'm the first to say where I've made my mistakes, like yep. pre-launch, I failed at that miserably and I am paying the price. Um, you know, the, I think it's probably, it's probably been my biggest mess up so far. Everything else has been pretty, pretty minor. Yeah. Um, having backups on suppliers. So mm-hmm. important. I preach this all the time to people, and I didn't have a backup for my it's uh, my lime leaf. Um, the, anyone who follows me on LinkedIn probably saw my plea for help a couple of weeks ago. Um, and fortunately, someone made a comment. I went, "Hold on, that doesn't ring true to what I know." And I had a full conversation with them. It turns out an assumption I had was completely wrong. Really? And I mean, like, oh yeah, and it is a big one. Like, it, it changes who I can order from in a, like a drastic way. Yeah. So now I'm back to having a couple different options, and um, I'll be ordering some right after this. So the Thai peanut butter will live to see another day. That's great. Um, yeah, but like, it's one of those things where you know you've got to be prepared to be wrong. You have to be prepared to ask for help. Yeah. You've got to be prepared to look like a complete idiot because, quite honestly, asking the question I asked. Oh man, as someone who's who claims to be the guy who researches everything to the nth degree and knows it all, it was such an amateur question to be asking. I felt mm-hmm. like such a fool. But thank goodness I did, because I was about to crash out an entire skew. That is our second most popular one, and the one that people immediately understand what it is, because like, oh yeah, it's a satay sauce. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's so important to humble yourself like that. And you know what? Like you're totally right. Be prepared to be wrong. But what you're actually trying to do is just poke holes in the weaknesses of the model that you've got so that you can strengthen it. And um one thing that I'd love to ask you as well. So while you're collecting all of this data, you're getting out there and, you know, you've got your, um, you've got the hypothesis or many hypotheses that you're trying to, um, that you're trying to see if there's any truth on, in it, or you're trying to, you know, make adjustments to it. Where, what we, sorry, let me rephrase this. When you were collecting all of that information, what were you putting it into? Was it a diary? Were you handwriting it down? Were you putting it into a spreadsheet? How were you collecting this information and how were you reviewing it? How frequently were you looking at it all? All great questions. Um, anything to do around pricing, suppliers, logistics was all in Excel. Yeah. Um, because it was the easiest way for me to rapidly switch back and forth between. Um, so like we developed all our own recipes, yep. which is not uncommon for founders. Yeah. Um, but it meant that I was doing all that recipe dev in Excel. So it meant yep. as I changed recipes, I set it up so that it would change my batch cost, cost would change yeah. my pricing cost, would change my PL. Perfect. It was just so much easier to do it that way. Yeah. Um, now that we're running, I have QuickBooks, of course, to help manage my, to keep track of all the expenses and everything, which just yeah. makes taxes easier. It's really yeah. just for taxes. Yeah. It's the biggest reason. Uh, I could do all of it otherwise in Excel just as easily, but yeah. it's so convenient to be able to quickly like hit a button and see a P&L up mm-hmm. to date. So much easier. Um, for the market research I was doing from um, the focus groups and things like that, it was also all in Excel because there were numbers are involved. I want to be able to run averages and things like that. Um, and then for everything else, for the market research, um, how did I do a lot of it? There's a lot of whiteboards, actually. Yeah. I've got a couple of whiteboards kicking around me. And so okay. I just had columns. So as you know, as I found out about local retailers, I put their names onto that list as ones mm-hmm. of interest. Same with mm-hmm. online like e-tailers. Yeah. Um, as I 
figured out different aspects of the brand, I would jot down notes on the whiteboard or I'd jot them down on a piece of paper and transfer them over there. And then I'd start taking pictures of whiteboards so I'd have them on my phone. So, because um, I have a, a daughter who likes to write on whiteboards, she would sometimes <laughs> erase stuff. So, um, but it was nice there because it allowed me to throw up ideas like our tagline spread the world yep. it took a while to come up with that and yep. um, we had a few different iterations that we played with and completely different taglines as well but it meant that i could throw stuff up on the board and my wife could walk by and be like yeah that one i don't think is going to work that's like that's like you know um we also are kind of owning the hashtag spice not spicy because mm-hmm. our peanut butters are spiced but not spicy, spicy. Our three and a half year olds are a taste tester like, yeah. they're not spicy you add your own heat we all have different heat levels i'm about to try and guess what is spicy for you mm-hmm. um but we were going to have that be more centered to our to our brand we went no that's not going to work you know coming up with taste wander as our url and our, our social handles we went through a bunch of iterations on that too you know yeah. there's just um you know different taglines like sentence taglines for different copy and um, the visualization of that made it a lot easier for us uh, mm-hmm. to be able to work, especially when you're working with others on it, if you have a co-founder. Um, and I'm still really guilty of this. I do keep a lot of stuff just in my head. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to write a business plan is great because it forces you to put all of it out on a piece of paper. Does. And yeah. I did that as well. Yeah. There was still tons that weren't in that document that's in my head, you know, mm-hmm. just because it wasn't the right place for it or to try to explain it all isn't wouldn't be worth it in the long run um so instead i have to have a quick conversation with my wife about xyz because it's going to impact what she's doing for the social post because she heads yep. up our social yeah this has also been a very interesting thing for me because that's also kind of my world as what i do but it's our company and we're doing this together and my expertise is far stronger in the recipe dev and the operations yes. and so if we're doing this jointly um we have to find ways for us both to be involved and so you know, we're both actively on the sales side, we're both actively in the marketing side, but she really heads up the overarching social content development. Then I, I manage our TikTok because I'm more comfortable being silly. Yep. And um, I'm actually a giant introvert, which is, comes, is kind of rather contradictory, a bit right. of an oxymoron. Yeah. Um, but for me, TikTok is almost like a private thing when I film them. Yeah. Even though I know it's going out to I mean, let's be real, right? That's like two or three hundred people who see it at any given point. But they're engaged. Uh, but but they're engaged. They are actually. Yeah. I, I will say I have a very high engagement across all mm. of our social, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I'm also okay to you know be a fool for a little bit. You know, I play hockey with a bunch of guys, and one of them, uh, old, older generation, to be fair, and he may hear this actually. Uh, <laughs> great great guy. I really like him a lot. So he he found one of my TikToks because I posted it up as real, and he was like, "Oh my god, you look like such an idiot." I'm like, yeah, it's cool. He's like, I'm going to tell all the guys. I'm like, yeah, awesome. Go tell all the guys. Like, tell them I have a business. This is great. So I get to the locker room. He's like, yo, I'm not going to tell them. Like, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm like, no, 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 no. Go nuts, man. Like, my entire TikTok is made for this. Like, I'm cool with being a fool. You're putting it out there. Yeah. For this, right? And the big thing is, um, and I will say this very confidently, you will never see me dancing around like an idiot dressed up as my Wanda character in real life. I will confidently say that. I may bounce up and down, like hop up and down. I will never be the clown I am you see on TikTok because I am still an introverted heart. So if yeah. you go and see like the team over at Midday Squares, yeah, I respect that amount of energy and that yeah, amount of too. extroversion and all of that. And it's just not me, even Erica. Mm. Like she's at a level that I'm just not okay with and mm-hmm. I can't do that. And here's the reality for all the founders out here who are hearing me say that I'm doing all this on TikTok and like, oh my God, I got to be the face. You don't, you don't. Is it easier? Hell yes. <laughs> it is so much easier when you can put yourself out there a little bit and be the face and be the one who's being a bit of a clown. 
and um, be okay with looking silly. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to with being okay with being wrong. Yeah. Being, you know, no one's going to, you know, judge you on how good your business on based on how well you can do the dance move to Wellerman on TikTok. Like it's just not going to matter. So you might yeah. as well do it. And you know, who you are on social doesn't need to be who you are in real life. You know, it's like I a persona. Yeah, it is a persona. And you know, the more people I talk to within the industry, you know, the, the more evident it is just like everything, right? Let's be very real here. Yeah. What you see on social doesn't matter whether you're a brand or a person like a personal brand or a company brand. There's a certain level of prestige and masking and filters going on there from what's really happening behind the scenes, right? So if you're a founder who you're like me, I'm an introvert. I can turn on the extroversion when I need to when I'm at like a trade show or things like that. But I'm still never the guy who's like, oh, welcome to YMCA now in the middle of the trade show floor, everybody. No, I'm the guy in the back who's like skirting out the back door trying to find a coffee or suddenly have to go to the bathroom. It's just as not for me. Right. So you can definitely do it and you can have this, you know, almost Jekyll Hyde kind of personality where in a very positive way where you don't have to be that crazy outward person all the time. And that's cool. And your brand doesn't have to be that either. It can just be part of your brand. And for us. On, on TikTok, I'm definitely that for the brand, but on all the other platforms and across our other social, if you look through what the content is, um, it's much more about the product and the recipes and the videos are usually featuring me, but they're just as likely to be just the product or yep. more often than not, you'll yep. see, you'll never fully see my daughter for the most part. Um, do do my own wife and I yeah yeah absolutely being able to build her own profile yeah less security more just like let her build her own profile when she's ready so she hasn't you know turned 13 and open Facebook for the first time it's like oh my god parents I'm everywhere photo (laughs) photo book of me um but she's certainly in all of her videos because she loves to cook with me and it's important it's important for me to have kids get involved in cooking and understand Mm -hmm. food and where food comes from and understand that nutrition isn't about this macronutrient or this micronutrient or getting so many grams of this in your day it's about understanding the bigger picture and um, especially for what we do and what we're creating, understanding there's different cultures and different communities and yeah. different ways of doing things. And, um, you know, this weird flavor isn't yucky. It's just different. And we have to understand that it's different. And let's talk about why that's different. Why do you think it's yucky? Because mm-hmm. I think it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so our other platforms are much more about that. And down the road, you know, um, all the, any fair I talk to always has these really grandiose expansion plans and I'm certainly no different. But one of the big ones for me that I'd love to do as a marketing um, campaign is to build out education packs to go with each of our peanut butters that are downloadable for parents with yep. things that help you engage your kid, whether it's a recipe or here's a map of the country, color it in or the flag. I love mm-hmm. flags. Like yep. so that and here's some cool fact, fast facts about the country and the people and the culture and the animals that are there. Cause we feature animals on all of our logos intentionally. Mm-hmm. Cause do you think I want plushies as giveaways down the road? Heck yeah, I do. It's on the list. Um, <laughs> And like this, so all this brand stuff comes out much more on the Facebook and Instagram where it's less trend heavy. Yeah. Um, and then on TikTok, it's much more trend heavy. But if you get to, you know, the ones that are tagged and the ones that are uh, or pinned and the ones that do the best, it's much more about like, here's my daughter. Here's why this is important. Here's yeah. a cool recipe. Um, and they're the fun ones. So for all the fans, like TikTok's important. You should be definitely checking it out. Um, I, I have a personal account I never use. I use it to go like Wanderers stuff. Yeah. Um, actually same for pretty much all social these days, except for LinkedIn. I just don't have time Yeah. Um, or interest truthfully. Um, so you need to be on there to know what's going on. Um, you know, I use the, my personal account, um, as much just to follow trends as anything else. Cause you want your own 
brand feed to be much more aligned to the brand identity. So you want the same profiles to be following you. Yeah. So yeah. all of that type of interactivity. So, yeah. you know, as much as I follow cooking and food brands and influencers on my personal account, that's all that's followed on my, on the Wander account. And then the personal account also follows a bunch of TikTok influencers and trend, you know, flaggers and things like that. And then yeah. I'll share info back and forth. Um, yeah. Dude, that has been a big hour. We have covered a lot of ground and you've given us so many insights. So thank you so much for your time. Um, If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, whether it was regarding the think tank or one and up butters, what's the best way? Uh, Best way I would say is probably on LinkedIn because I'm there all day, all night. I'm very easy to find. Those who follow me know that I post not a crazy amount. I engage with a lot more stuff than I post. Um, But yeah, you can find me there. Jared Kligerman, easy to find. Um, You can try and find me on the other social platforms if you want. Um, If you want to come follow Wander on the other platforms, because they are there's some fun content, particularly on TikTok. See this six foot eight white guy (laughs) dance around. Um, Guys, rhythm when it comes to playing instruments, but not moving his body. Very fun. Um, Over on on all the social handles with taste.wander. And then for anything about marketing, love to talk marketing all day, all night. Um, Or brands or consumer behavior, retail, all the stuff that pertains more to the think tank. Um, Send me an email. Um, it's Jared J A R E D at T T T. That's three T's isn't Tom M R K T G.com. So Perfect. triple T marketing.com. Um, cause I've, all of our clients know this is triple T and you know, if we're going to, um, acronym, our first part of our name, we might as well acronym the second part. So go back to university days and marketing. It is, uh, <laughs> but drop me a line. Always happy to chat about whatever your brand's going through, or if you're an agency who's trying to do something new and different and want to see if it's viable or not, oh, always down to chat. Perfect, mate. I'm going to throw everything in the show notes. So everybody just needs to scroll on down. You can click on the links and, uh, and you'll find everything there. So Jared, once again, thank you so much for your time, mate. It's much appreciated. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Great Speak soon. Name. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what I can do to help you achieve your packaging vision, you can reach me directly at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You could DM me on Instagram at thepackheavypodcast or we could also connect on LinkedIn and start a conversation there. I'll see you next week.